Hi, it's Bob from Royal Spa. Soaking in a hot tub full of Epsom salts is the absolute best way to minimize everyday aches and pains. And we know all about Epsom salts at Royal Spa. Royal Spa hot tubs are the only hot tubs on the market that can safely and effectively use Epsom salts. Made right here in Indiana, Royal Spa hot tubs are the highest quality hot tubs on the market. Visit any one of our three Indianapolis locations or visit royalspa.com. Ah, Royal Spa. You're listening to the best of Kevin and Query on 93.5 and 107.5. The Fan. 8 o'clock hour on what is a really nice Thursday here in Indianapolis. It is opening day for Major League Baseball. And I guess there is the potential that today is also a big day for possibly the next Colts quarterback. Jake, of is the pro day for the next Colts quarterback happening today? I don't believe so. I still am going to stand by with – I still think it's going to be Will Levis. I don't know why, but – Those maybe pictures of Will Levis the other day? The uh, before and afters? Yeah. Yeah. Well, look at you. He looks like <laughs> – I wish. He before, looks like the, he's going to like world's strongest man. Yeah. So you uh, – by the way, Hendon Hooker – So what you're saying is he wasn't handing out donuts shirtless I, because of Michael boy, Shrewsbury? I don't think he was in line at Long's, although he should be. By the way, JMV uh, just texted me. He wants Kansas City. Oh, he's going to go the Royals. He wants in on this, too? Okay. He's the in? Royals, by I'll the way, are in there. 68 and a half. All right, we'll give John Kansas Yeah, he can get I'm in glad there. you guys gave me that tiebreaker handicap. That'll really come in handy come <laughs> September 25th this fall. Uh, the pro days today for it's Hendon more beer Hooker. For you to drink after watching Will Levis get the Colts off to an zero and five start, Kevin. <laughs> right? Uh, Anthony Richardson in Gainesville, Hendon Hooker in Knoxville. Those are the two pro days today. Hendon Hooker to me is interesting, Kevin, because and I know I've said this a lot, but I, this is one area where I think you and I kind of compromise and meet halfway. I was not under the belief that the Colts needed to move from four to one because I thought it wasn't worth giving up what you would have to surrender to move up in what I thought was not as big a margin from four to one at the quarterback. And you were saying, no, if you have a guy that you want, you get him. There is a lot of talk of do they trade their four and move back, say, 15 to 20 slots and draft somewhere in the mid to late first and still take Hendon Hooker. And my answer to that, that jives with what you're saying is I wouldn't do that because in that scenario, then you are running a risk because if you do that and then all of a sudden you are stunned because a San Francisco or a green Bay or somebody that you didn't think was in play grabs him at 18 or 21 or whatever else, now you're completely set back. So you go trade back, not trade up in the second round? No, what I'm saying is the thought process of, hey, either get more pieces out of your four or draft outside of the quarterback position at four and then later, like in the second, or you know, get hooker. I don't think you can run that risk that, that somebody else might not grab him. Again, Hendon Hooker not going to work out today, coming off the torn ACL. We'll see how much Anthony Richardson does in Gainesville. I do, and we'll talk with Joel Erickson coming up here at 9 o'clock, who's out of the owners' meetings. But you know, Chris Ballard 
mentioned earlier in the week that basically the Colts had not gotten there in the process to feel like it was necessary to trade up the one. Um, you could make the argument that Carolina, when they did it, they weren't there in the process either. But they felt like eventually they would get there. They didn't want to run the risk of not getting there or I should say maybe have another team trade up to one and then not be able to do that. But we see how Carolina has gone to all these pro days with you know a dozen people in their franchise attending last week, C.J. Stroud and Bryce Young and Will Levis, and then I assume today will be the same thing with Anthony Richardson. I do find it a bit interesting, Jake, that last week with C.J. Stroud and Will Levis, the Colts sent one person from their organization to the pro day. And then you hear on Monday Chris Ballard in Arizona say, "Well, again, we just don't we just didn't feel like we had done enough homework on the prospects. Sending one person to the pro day doesn't seem like you're trying to do a whole lot of homework on the prospects. Like again, pro days for me are less about what the player does on the field and more about you send three or four of your staff members to that campus. And and you know what? Even if you don't want C.J. Stroud, Ohio State's got 10 other dudes that are going to get drafted. So you go talk to their strength coaches. You go talk to their position coaches. Right. You go talk to all those people associated with their college football program, nutrition staff, manager, whoever, and you get more intel on those guys. It's a bit odd to me that Ballard would say, like, we just weren't there in the process. We still had more homework to do. And then at the pro days, you're sending one area scout for a program in Ohio State's case that might have the most players drafted of any in college football. Kevin, I'll, I'll tell you an interesting anecdote that, that goes along with that. I was just telling someone this the other day. When I was in college, my junior year of college, I wanted an internship, but I wanted to live in New York City. I'd always been fascinated by New York City. And in the spring break of my junior year of college, my buddy Jason Gross had a cousin that lived in New York, and he said, do you want to go to New York for spring break? And I said, yes, because I want to try to get an internship for the summer. How naive of me that in March I'm applying for an internship that would begin in May, right? I mean, like they obviously had all those full. But this was pre-internet, pre-cell phones, et cetera. I took a stack of resumes a stack of them. And when we were in New York City, I went to every television and radio station in the greater New York metropolitan area and walked in and said, I go to Indiana University and I was hoping to do an internship for the summer here in New York. Here's my resume, etc." Every single place that I went to said, well, yeah, I mean, that's those are filled like by December, a semester ahead. I went to MTV Networks, the Viacom building in Times Square, and I walked in with my resume and my little booklet and whatever else and told the receptionist that's what I was doing there. And she said, oh, well, I I think that deadline's passed, whatever. And I said, okay. And she said, actually, hang on just a second. A woman came out, took me into her office and said, you know what? We, we filled these at the end of the first semester, like in January, but the receptionist said that you were very polite when she told you that. So therefore, if you're actually willing to live here, we'll give you an internship. So I ended up moving to New York and interning at MTV. The point of my story having nothing to do with me is that business made that decision because they assessed an interaction of somebody with which you would never assume would be evaluated. 
the interactions with the receptionist at the front desk. If you are, there's no comparison, admittedly, between a college kid looking for an internship and a guy you're paying millions of dollars. I get that. But to your point, I do think that it's in the best interest of a business to say, I'm not interested as much about, sure I am, about how this guy interacts with his teammates, but how does he interact with the guy in the mailroom, the, the, the training staff, the nutrition staff? Does he listen to, does he consider himself to be above all of those people, which turns into Ryan Leaf? Or like when Peyton Manning retired from the Colts and could name every single person that worked in the building and every single thing that they did for his career, that's the kind of, of like of approach that I want to invest my money in if I'm the Indianapolis Colts. And that's why I would go to your point and find those kinds of backgrounds. And again, there are other ways to do that. You know, a pro day, Hendon Hooker and Anthony Richardson are waking up today, and the first thing their agent is saying to them is, you are on your best behavior for the next 12 hours. Right. You are interacting with everybody Correct. like they are your best friend. So obviously you would like for when the cameras are not on to find out that info. So I, I acknowledge a pro day can be a bit staged even in that realm. Do you make anything out of the Colts only sending one area scout to, again, the best, if not the best, one of the best college football programs for producing NFL talent in Ohio State and then just one to Will Levis in Kentucky? Is that a team that has already done their homework, and they're just publicly saying things? I would like to think it's that. I would like to think that that's because the Colts are like, look, we don't... The Colts may well, Kevin, the Colts may be well saying, look, of course, at the pro day, it's in the best interest of Ohio State University. It's in the best interest of the University of Tennessee. It's in the best interest of the University of Kentucky to have everybody putting their best foot and their best face forward on pro day. So it's entirely possible that the Colts are saying... That stuff that I heard Kevin Bowen and Jake Quarry talking about is very important to us, but we're not going to be fooled into only seeing it on Pro Day. So we've got our scouts going and talking and having those conversations at totally different times that you don't know about. I'm hoping that's the case, but I assume it is, right? Yeah, after these Pro Days, um, top 30 visits will be something that the month of April is really focused on and you know four weeks from today um, will be round one of the NFL draft and we'll get an answer to this you know I think I've made it pretty clear kind of where I sit on the Lamar Jackson side of that debate and I, I think you just have to stress the injury aspect to Lamar Jackson I was thinking about this yesterday if you look at the Ravens the last two years, a team that's been in the thick of a playoff division race, you know, potentially one of the teams that could represent the AFC, entering the month of December each of the last two years, the Ravens have played 12 games in December and January the last two years. 12 games, one of those being a playoff game. Lamar Jackson's missed 10 straight of them. 12 games in the two biggest months of the year, Lamar Jackson has missed 10 straight games. He started and finished the first of those 12 games, got hurt in the second, and has missed 10 straight. That, to me, is the most concerning aspect to giving him the type of money that it looks like he wants, slash giving up two first-round picks. If a guy's playing style has led to him at the age of 26 missing a month-plus at the most important time of the season, uh, that's too much for me. Too much for me. I I think... 
Great talent, unbelievable talent. Rare, unique, would give offer this fan base an injection of energy and excitement and all of that. But when December and January rolls around, need him out there. I think Lamar Jackson is a great story for us to talk about. I don't think the Colts have any interest in him. I mean, I guess you have interest. If Lamar Jackson said, like, you know, my dream in life has been to play for the Indianapolis Colts, and so therefore I'm willing to do it for $5 million a year, okay, sure. But, I mean, realistically, under the terms and everything that goes into it, that Lamar Jack- and the fact that you have to trade to get him, it makes for a good conversation here. Haven't the Colts all but basically said, like, look, guys, it's a great storyline, but no. Ursa, yes. Ballard, no. Uh, well... That's Again, how much of that is Ballard being the politician during the time of year that you have to be when you have the fourth overall pick, and how much of that is just Ursay being Ursay? How do you see the Lamar Jackson thing playing out? You think he ends up taking Mar- the, Mar- the tag no with the Ravens? I think they trade him to an NFC team, and I think they trade him to an NFC team. Who is that team, though? Atlanta. Haven't they publicly said no? Um, Tampa Bay. Uh, who's Tampa Bay's quarterback? Baker. Yeah, Baker Mayfield and uh, Jacoby Brissett. Yeah. Do one of these teams look at uh, the commander for Anthony Richardson? The commanders one made a lot of sense to me, but it seems like they're out too. Yeah, I was going to say, didn't Ron Rivera say no? Yeah. You guys are going to laugh. You ready? San Francisco. I know they've got good players at quarterback position, but they are right at the ceiling. Isn't Lamar Jackson, if he's healthy, the guy that bursts them right through that? Yeah, I just don't know if these teams have correct. the, the cap correct. or the first-round pick. I mean, San Francisco, that's, no way they have their first-round pick, right? Didn't that go to some trade? I feel like San Francisco just traded away all their picks. Christian McCaffrey, of course, is part of it, but contractually, I'm... Yeah, the 49ers' uh, 29th overall pick went to the Saints. And their second rounder, right, is Carolina's, right? Is now what Carolina I traded that's to correct. the Bears? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, again, a lot of it obviously is, and that's what I thought Ursay really stressed earlier this week was, you know, look at the asking price. The asking price is at a really, really high level. If you want to get off quarterback for a second here for the Colts, I would say O line, corner, and wide out. I mean, corner for sure. And that, and part of that, the thing to me about the corner, no positions lost more than corner the, and this that's offseason. The thing is, corner is an urgency. Not urgency is maybe the wrong word. Uh, corner is a need based on their own doing, right? It's not like guys like naturally just got old and retired, or somebody got hurt or whatever else. I mean, they've they've kind of they've said we need to upgrade this area and let guys go, right? You know, they've had this run where they've they've had a veteran corner in the building, whether it's Pierre Desir or Xavier Rhodes or Stephon Gilmore. You know, pretty much throughout the Ballard era, they find they have found a nice veteran corner, but right now they don't have that. Um, so I think that is it, – it'll be an interesting debate. Like, let's just th- play out the hypothetical. They take quarterback in round one. Then they get to round two. What do they take there? The need screams corner more than anything else. But does the fact that you have a rookie quarterback mean you side with the offensive side of the ball more? And you go O-line or you go pass catcher? I mean, O-line. You know my thought, Kevin. O-line and corner, man. You could, I, I, don't, I don't care if you already have on your roster, in their prime, Mike Webster, Orlando Pace. I, I, you know, I mean, go on. Jonathan Ogden. 
John Hanna, I, Anthony Munoz. A lot of those are overlapping positions, I realize. I, you can never have too many. You just can't an offensive line. And the same with corners. You just can't. Corners in particular, because the funny thing to me about corners and the thing that I think it's the hardest position to evaluate is corner is the one position in the National Football League, Kevin, more than any other where when a guy when the fall off begins, it is like overnight and it is glaring. And you kind of never know when it's going to happen. That's why I thought the Stephon Gilmore trade turned out to be a, a great or excuse me, sign when they signed him. I thought it was a great sign by Chris Ballard because he had a really good, you know, they, they kind of took a flyer on it. You didn't know if he'd fallen off, and he hadn't. He was really good. It was for a great them. signing. Yeah. I know. And that's why it's this curious one to me. Mr. Gilmore. <laughs> okay. That's the. <laughs> Look at Kevin. <laughs> Interesting there, Mark Dykton. <laughs> what was that you played, Mark? Because uh, he's gone now. Yeah, I know. He was, just, he was retired, but if we're going to mention him out of blue sky, you might as well play it one Like time. a reverence? Yeah. A little bit there. Yeah, wait a yeah. minute. Hold on, we we need to we need to. Here's the thing: we need to have a ceremony. Okay? Well, I played taps when he got traded, but we need to have an official ceremony. I saw Jim Mercy's at a dinner for a whale last night. That we we hereby Lolita, we hereby whale. declare. That he he tweeted about that right, and and now he's got pictures of the whale, beautiful looking whale. Is it Brendan Fraser? Uh, we we hereby declare on this the what is today's date. The 30th. On this, the 30th day of March. Got to do the knuckles, Jake. Remember, we got one more day left in the month. That's right. Uh, Indiana won a national championship on this day in either 81 or 87. I can't recall. Well, actually, uh, 40, 53, 76, 81, and 87 were all on either March 30th or 31st, I believe. But um, on this, the 30th of March of 2023, we, the Kevin and Corey program on 93.5107.5 The Fan, Regret to inform you that this will be the final time that we play one of the greatest sound bites in the history of Sports Talk Radio in this market, at least from a morning standpoint, which was Jim Ursay selecting a dessert in honor of Stefan Gilmore, who had good moments, saved the Denver Broncos Thursday night dreadful game for the 12% of the people that stayed up late to watch it, and perhaps kept Al Michaels from quitting on the spot with that game. Stephon Gilmore's been traded to the Dallas Cowboys, and as a result of that, we, for the final time on this program, at least this week, play for you the fabulous soundbite of Jim Irsay tipping his hat to the fine acquisition of the former NFL Defensive Player of the Year, Stephon Gilmore. This one for Mr. Gilmore. (laughs) Touching. Mark stood up with a salute. We will always have Alex Pierce, though. Alex, right? With an X on the end of that one there. No comment. Mm -hmm. Poor, poor Alex Pierce. (laughs) Destined for a big second year here. And obviously just had a joyous run in watching his brother play for Princeton as they made the Sweet 16. A Bo Borowski coming up in about 10 minutes. Is it dusty in here? Got a little... I would like for the record to state, by the way, that it was Mark that pushed that button, and it was Kevin that actually somewhat called for the Alec Pierce soundbite. I had nothing to do with that. And like teamwork, like throwing your calling and then executing the bus and then rolling us over. Two different things, but I support Mark (laughs) in that endeavor. Love that music. 
Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. And that soundtrack, and I think, if I had to guess, I know he's a really busy man out in Arizona, but you know, when I was fortunate to go to a owner's meetings out in Arizona, I made sure that a spring training game was fit in in some capacity. Jola Erickson, I'm unaware of where your brewers go for spring training, but did you get in any baseball when you were out there? I didn't. I didn't. I, wow, my that surprises me. My flight worked. My flight out there didn't quite work, and their game was at one ten on Sunday. Trust me, I knew, I knew, but I, 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 that's right around the time I had to go pick up my credential and kind of hang around, and so I talked to a couple people. But I did very much want to go. I very much wanted to go. I haven't been to a spring training game in about a decade, so yeah, I really wanted to. Now I have high respect for your baseball opinion, so we're going to have you put your NL Central uh, analysis hat on. Your outlook on the Central this year is what? Well, I hate to admit it, but the Cardinals are probably the favorite. And then uh, Milwaukee chasing them with uh, with with the Cubs. You know, who, depends on depends on a couple of the guys the Cubs signed. I think whether or not they're gonna whether or not they're gonna be be in the mix or not. But I still I still feel like Milwaukee's got a better starting staff. But I feel like St. Louis's lineup means that we're chasing them. All right. Jerry's happy. That's all I gotta say. Listen, no, to Jerry, Jerry a Cardinals fan. Yeah, yeah. do you well, hate the Cardinals, I, Joel? As, as a Cardinals fan, I'm sure he, I'm sure he's disgusted that you have me on. Cardinals fans don't believe that any any other fan should exist. So, <laughs> well, Cardinal fans also are convinced that no other fans exist because no one's a fan like the Cardinals because they cheer the butt because they understand the game, right? No, yeah, exactly. Uh, Jake's got it. You got it down. Mm-hmm. Set down. Yeah, after he going does. To, after going to school in Missouri for four years, I, I figured I figured all that out. Yes. Yeah, they they that was when Milwaukee was really bad, and people would be like, "Your team's bad." I'd be like, "I I know, I get it." <laughs> to be fair to your Brewers, times have changed a bit, but yeah, uh, I would say it's probably a wise bet. As much as I hate to say it, too, bet on the Cardinals. Um, all right, as I mentioned, Joel, your work out there was outstanding. Credit to you and, and Stephen and Zach, and I know the Colts.com crew as well for uh, getting that content and you know helping us, I guess, chat a little bit about it. So I've been looking forward to the conversation. Um, let's begin with the, I guess, the L- Lamar Jackson chatter. Uh, is it fair to say, Joel, that Chris Ballard was a little bit more politically correct in playing both sides of the fence on Lamar Jackson, whereas Jim Irsay potentially watered it down. Yeah, that's exactly that's exactly the way I, I kind of looked at it. You know, especially after so many teams just kind of outright said, "Hey, we're not interested." You know, and it, it kept on happening this week. Um, you know, Pete Carroll, Dan Campbell, a couple of the other coaches that talked were asked about Lamar Jackson. We're like, "No, nah, he's not really in our plans." Now, obviously, those guys have more solidified quarterback situations than the Colts do, but it still was kind of arresting to hear Chris say, hey, you've got to do the work on it. You've got to look at it. And and then, like, six hours later or seven hours later or whatever it was, you know, um, Ursay was talking about all the stuff that, that it takes to – you have to give up and what that means for team building and stuff like that. And, yeah, I did think that – I came away from Ursay 
kind of back to the point where I was thinking, oh, I don't know how much of a chance there is of this happening. So, do you think, Joel, Joel A. Erickson's our guest, he's on the Payless Liquors Hotline, the, the market for Lamar Jackson, or the lack of market for Lamar Jackson, would you say that that is more durability or lack thereof, or price tag and the fact that he does not have representation and is doing it on his own? I I think that, and I know this isn't a popular opinion, but I, I think that the durability issue and what you're guaranteeing to somebody who's been hurt the last couple of years is a bigger deal. And the, the reason I think that is because last year at this time, there were four teams publicly chasing after Deshaun Watson, um, which was honestly a much more problematic case uh, from turn like what what you had to deal what you had to deal with in terms of reaction with Watson is to me what much worse than than just Jackson being his own agent uh, and and Watson ended up getting a guaranteed contract out of it you know the the biggest one the one that kind of set this Jackson or reportedly kind of set this Jackson thing in motion. And to me, if, if all those teams were willing to go after Watson and one of them was willing to guarantee it, and everyone's saying no on this one, it, it feels like there's got to be something extra that's a football reason. Because last year we found out the NFL is willing to overlook a lot if a guy can really play quarterback. And I, I think the durability is probably, it seems like the most obvious one to me. Well, it's interesting, though, because in Watson's case, you know, in Lamar Jackson's case, the precedent would say that you're not going to get 17 games out of him, but you don't know that for certain. In Deshaun Watson's case, at least for the first year, you knew for certain you were not going to get 17 games out of him, and yet he got guaranteed. It seems to me, I, I think, Joel, quite frankly, I think part of it could be because Jackson wants guaranteed money, there's a natural pushback by the rest of the owners to say, look, this is... We didn't like what Cleveland did with Deshaun Watson and giving him guaranteed money. We have to collectively, and I know that collusion is a word that people don't want to hear, but we have to collectively get together to basically put a kibosh on this right now before this becomes the precedent and is expected everywhere and it starts hitting our pocketbooks that heavy. Is that Well, you saw, you saw what Jim Ursay said about it. You saw what Ursay said about guaranteed contracts, and, and I want to make sure... You know, I think we've all been clarifying this, but when when Stephen asked him about guaranteed contracts, he was not he was asking from a league wide trend standpoint. He wasn't asking about Jackson in particular, so it's not a Jackson answer. But he he was asked about fully guaranteed contracts, and he said no. He doesn't believe they're good for the game. He looks at Major League Baseball and the NBA and thinks it's been bad for them. I don't know exactly. I don't I don't know the details of what he means by that. He just feels like it's been a bad bad thing for those leagues and um yeah i i would assume as usual that ursay is not just speaking for himself there i think that there's a lot of times that ursay ends up speaking for the rest of the league i mean the daniel snyder case is a really good example of that from last fall where it felt like ursay was just the one willing to say out loud what some of the other owners have been thinking and Joel Erickson is with us here from the indianapolis star he was out in arizona earlier this week tons of content up on the website from out there. Um, kind of shifting gears, Jim Ursay was asked um, you know, about Chris Ballard and, and just kind of where things stand with Chris heading into year seven, you know, expectations, hot seat, etc. It seemed to me, Joel, that really for the first time 
in a while, maybe ever, Jim Irsay's comments were not, oh yeah, we're fitting him for a gold jacket tomorrow. It, it was a little bit more tempered on the Chris Ballard front. Was that accurate? Yeah, he said, he said everyone, he, he kind of opened it by saying, um, cause I think what I asked was, do you like it, you know, the, it, there's been talk that he has to win this year to keep his job or it, do you see him with Shane? And he said, I see him with Shane. Um, but everyone has to be successful at their jobs with their head coach or general manager. And he did, you know, he said later he's not on some quick hot seat, but you're, you're right. It wasn't quite as effusive as it has been in the past. Um, I still don't know that that means that this is a, I'm looking at this as a make or break year because there was some mixed messaging on that a little bit too, in terms of what their expectations are for the year. But I think realistically, you know, that if you're going to get a rookie quarterback and you're probably getting the third one off the board, expecting someone to win the division seems a little bit, I just don't, I don't, I don't know if you could expect them to do that based on where they're, where they're at. Like it seems like the Colts are heading towards more of a, we have to wait and see what we have here. Um, but yes, no, I agree with you. It, it wasn't quite as effusive. He did, he did offer up a lot of the defenses he's offered up for Ballard in the past, but you're right. It, he's, I mean, it, he, there were no Michael Jordan comments. Now, Joel, uh, like there were, like there were last fall. Let me ask you this. Let me, let me tell you one thing that I saw that I found peculiar. And I think that you had an up close and personal, uh, observation of it. Jim Mersey was talking to a couple of media members. I, I think you were one of them. And then some fella from the commanders that's a henchman for Daniel Snyder came up and started recording it like he was going to put him on TikTok. Now, now what, what what was going on there? Did you witness that? No, I actually missed that. I missed okay. that when I was, I was busy writing at the time and didn't realize that the owners, the owners part of that meeting had ended. What would you – you're aware of it, right? I mean, obviously yeah. somebody got a picture of someone from the commanders – and Kevin made note of it too, using his phone to videotape Ursay's comments. I, on the surface, what that would appear would be that after Ursay made comments directly about Daniel Snyder, probably that the owner of the commanders wants to know what Ursay has to say and sent somebody out to, to document it. There's There's been some weird stuff. There were a couple of weird statements from the commanders organization last fall. Like... There was a weird statement they put out when he hired Jeff Saturday that said something like, we think everyone should be qualified for the jobs they have. Um, and it, it does seem like there's uh, that Snyder took note of what Ursay said and kind of made it personal. It, it, like, if they're doing that now, it's even weirder because one of the other things that came out of that is there are two actual bids for the, for the, the team now. Official, actual bids for the Washington Commanders. I mean that was one of the that was one of the subjects of the meetings was uh, all the Washington guys they 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 were as much as the rest of us were asking football questions and what's going on they were asking the team's going to get sold and it's it's weird to me I guess it's not weird if you consider the history of Daniel Snyder and everything we know about him but like to all appearances it seems like he's on his way out and I don't understand why you'd still be taking these shots at Ursay when Ursay essentially kickstarted what's going to happen? What's going to happen is he, it seems like he's going to—he's selling the team. Um, and so, yeah, I did see that, and I've seen some of the other commanders' things where they make mention of the Colts. It's just weird to me. Although 
again, it's weird to me from a normal, logical perspective. It's not weird to me thinking about everything we know about how Dan Snyder has operated over the course of his time owning that team. Okay, Joel A. Erickson is with us from the Indianapolis Star. Uh, Joel, another thing on the Ballard front, you know, you guys asked him about trading up to number one. Obviously, we saw Carolina do that with Chicago here a couple weeks ago. Um, his answer, it almost was like, you know, we hadn't done, we hadn't gotten there yet. It, you know, we, we hadn't done our full homework yet. I think the Shane Steichen hire a little bit late in the process potentially played into that. Um, what did you make of that answer from, from Ballard? Well, so I asked him as a follow-up, I, I asked him, you know, do you, are you concerned at all that when you get through the process, once you've talked to all these guys, that you're going to feel like there was one guy above the rest that you had to have? Yeah, that's a great follow-up. And he said, he said no, and that's, that's kind of the stuff that was in the story about, about, no, we feel like there's enough depth in this class. And I think he didn't say this out, outright, but I think the, the unspoken part of that is they didn't feel it all off the tape because Ballard, Ballard has repeatedly said this offseason, and he said it again in Arizona, that the tape is what matters most, you know. And so um, off the tape, I don't think they felt like – they just didn't feel like there was a burrow or somebody that they need to move up with. You know, in terms of he kind of he kind of didn't want to say and you understand why they don't want to say this. You know, uh, I think it was Steven asked, you know, there wasn't a ton of separation in the quarterback class and he didn't want to say that. But that is kind of what they're saying at the same time is there wasn't what they felt like a perfect prospect. And it seems like they feel some of these guys are close enough that it's not a big deal if they once they get through the process because the the process part of it that they hadn't done obviously he's, they they've done the tape work they've gone to the games and, and done all that he was saying that the big thing was you got to talk to these guys you got to you got to talk to them you got to figure out stuff and and we've all heard from Steichen how important that is in terms of figuring out who they are so that's that's I think what was going on there you know. I have always felt, Joel, I've said it a thousand times now and probably will a thousand more, Levis just seems like a Ballard kind of guy, but Richardson also, Kevin, to your point, I mean, Richard, you know, Ballard likes size and intangibles and things like that. Richardson has that as well. Do you think, Joel, is it possible what you're saying here? Is it possible that Chris Ballard is saying, you know what, I'm cool either way. We're going to stick right at four. We might get Richardson, we might get Levis, but I'm, I'm a, we'll work with whichever one is there. Well, he didn't want to rule out trading up or trading back. Um, and, and, and I know with, with Ballard, you know, he likes to throw that stuff out there as possibilities, but Ursay kind of did the same thing. There was one point where Ursay said, he said the five quarterbacks that could be worthy of taking high, um, which, you know, I just kind of made a mental note. You know, because everyone else has been saying four, and Ballard said had said four. Um, but I don't necessarily know that it's that. I think part of it is, you know, what KB was saying at the beginning. They didn't have Steichen, and Steichen is going to play a big role in this. Ursay said flat out, like, who fits Shane Steichen's system? I think in talking to Steichen over the over the past couple of days, and talking to Ballard, it's less about who fits Steichen's system and who's it's more about who fits the, the mental profile that Steichen wants out of a quarterback. Because I've asked, and I'm, you know, KB's been a part of this too, but we've all asked Steichen a bunch of times if he has a prototype, and he doesn't. 
he's he's pushed back on that every time Ballard said at one point you know it opens up the scouting for them because they don't have to rule people out because they don't fit a certain prototype at quarterback um but he does care very deeply about uh you know, is this someone who's going to work at it and work at it and work at it and, and be obsessed with it, and be obsessed with improving, be obsessed with loving the game? Uh, and that's, I think, the part with Steichen that, that they're still going through. They, well, I asked him about not really being at the pro days. I think without them, it, I think what, what Steichen said publicly was, you know, I think you can do your due diligence other than the pro days. I think I think the, the meaning behind that is if you don't have the first pick, if you're not the Carolina Panthers and you don't have the first pick and you can't kind of force your way into the quarterback uh, next to, onto, the, onto the quarterback's hip for the entirety of the pro day because you have the first pick, um, I think they probably feel like, you know, you're better off getting, that, getting the stuff you want to get done in a top 30 visit where you can control what you get to ask and when you get to ask it. Yeah, I guess um, that's well said. Is is why they haven't been out at the pro days. It's a, it's different for Carolina. Carolina has a number one pick. Every quarterback has to every quarterback has to do what they want at the pro day because everyone wants to be the number one pick. Yeah, I feel like the dominant trait for Shane Steichen is neck up. You know, physically he's worked with a variety, but neck up, they're all wired in the same way, and that's what Shane wants in this selection. Okay, Joel, last one, um, Ballard. Seem to kind of stamp that Kenny Moore and Ryan Kelly will be around here. Um, let's say you get to the draft, which we're four weeks away from it, and maybe you draft two corners in round two or four. Maybe you draft an interior offensive lineman in round three. Do you think in any way we could get to the final day of the draft and Kenny Moore and or Ryan Kelly become like a Quincy Wilson or Hassan Ridgeway, which I know is kind of a slap in the face to their level of play, but basically, could you see them traded at some point during the draft? Not. It, he didn't give that impression. He, he was pretty strong. He was pretty strong uh, on the idea that they'd be here. And I think you know, in the scenarios you'd listed, even if they draft two corners, even if they draft, they're already two corners down. Um, you know, so even if you, they're already two corners down with the departures of Gilmore and Faison. Um, they're they're already down, or they're not down an offensive lineman, but we've kind of all talked about the need to add there. Those are spots they haven't added yet. So, I, based on what he said, it would surprise me if they made that move at the end of at, at the end of the draft, based on the way he talked about it. Hey, Joel, how'd you become a Brewers fan? Well, I'm from Wisconsin. That's how. What uh, what part of Wisconsin? I am from. I think, well, I, think I knew this actually. It's a tiny town about twenty minutes east of Eau Claire, and most people don't know where Eau Claire is. So, uh, Eau Claire is two hours east of Minneapolis. I'm I'm right at the edge of where farmland turns to Northwoods. Okay, so how far is that from Milwaukee? Four hours. So wow. you're two hours from the Twins, four hours from the Brewers, and you pick the Brewers. Oh, it's a state line thing, man. That's cool. It's the state line thing. <laughs> I can respect that. That's cool. Now, growing up, the Twins were obviously pretty good. No, uh, we went to we went to some Twins games. I went to more games at the Metrodome growing up than I did at County Stadium because of the distance. And when we went to some games, like I re- I had a bat, like a big Twins Kirby Puckett inflatable bat that I got when I was really little. And I think we went to a game there, not. Like the year that they won the World Series, the Twins were good, you know. Um, but there's there's a pretty strong, at least I always thought that there was a pretty strong state 
state pride portion of Wisconsin. And that, that kind of always led you back to the Brewers, even though the Brewers were, were much worse than the Twins the entire time I was growing up. I can respect that, though. I mean, that's cool for sure. Milwaukee's a great town, no question. Have, Joel? You, have you ever gone down the slide in the outfield? <laughs> no, no, but I will tell you this. I know exactly how much it costs to do that. And I know exactly how old my two older sons have to be to do it the first time. That's what I'll say about that. Wait, you, can, wait a minute. can you share that with us? Not necessarily how old that your it, children have to it, be, but... For a weekday game, for a weekday game, it's one hundred and fifty dollars. So you get like a ticket. It's like a ticket package and a behind the scenes package. But the 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 real carrot is you get to go down the slide. No way. That we're talking about the Bernie Brewer home run slide. Right? Okay, so that includes yeah. a ticket. You said. Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure it includes the ticket and everything, and you get to go down the slide. You do stuff pregame, and your kids, I think, have to be eight. Your kids have to be eight years old to do it. Um, which which I get because, like, when you're there, it really is kind of – I bet when you're up on top of that thing, if you've got a fear of heights, which I have a little bit of one, mm-hmm, uh, same. I, I bet your knees are shaking a little bit. We have the two-seater. They have the slide. It's <laughs> pretty awesome. <laughs> yeah, I, I went to a Brewers game. I sat in the, the, the worst seat in the house intentionally. They played the Reds, actually, when I was there for IndyCar a couple years ago. Uh, it's a cool stadium, and I didn't uh, – Bernie Brewer was just like hanging out up there on the slide, just hanging. Nobody hit a home oh, run though; he never kid, went down it. When we when we go to games up there uh, with my parents and stuff during the summer, like my my kids always know where Bernie is at every moment of the game. <laughs> <laughs> Heck yeah, yeah. Some people are like, "Hey, how's Corbin Burns's hair?" No, we're all about where is Bernie. First pitch today. They each have a Bernie Brewer signed ball. He he, you know, he signed a ball for him. It's on their it's on their dressers up here. Gosh, I absolutely love that. The mullet will be in full effect at 220 today. Corbin Burns against Marcus Stroman from Wrigley. Joel, good luck to your Brewers, and thanks for all the insight this week, uh, indirectly and now directly. Yeah, you you bet. You bet. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Guys. In terms of college basketball, can you tell me what Baylor, California, Iowa, Marquette, North Carolina State, the University of San Francisco, Texas, and our next guest all have in common? Boy, I was first going to say that's like the portal list for, you know, Evansville's <laughs> leading scorer this year. That's but right. then you threw in uh, my favorite co-worker from back in the day at Plum Creek, not named John Peelmeyer. Uh, that would be Bo Broski. Uh, boy, I got nothing there. Three Final Four appearances for all of them. Look at that. And some recent ones for ours okay. uh, compared to some of those teams you mentioned, right? That is correct. As a matter of fact, a year ago, he was manning the sidelines, if you want to call it that. He might have a different vantage point uh, of how he refers to it. But he was officiating one of the iconic games in Final Four history. Bo Borowski, who joins us now on the Payless Liquors Hotline. On this, the the cusp of Final Four weekend again. And Bo, I know now you are, you, you know, you hung up the whistle. Do you get a little bit already nostalgic is it too recent for you to look back and is it almost surreal to think you know what it's pretty cool to watch all this now from the outside and realize i was a part of it well maybe all the above 
uh, Jake. And uh, before we move on, if, if it's okay, how is John Peelmeyer above me on the well, list at Plum Creek, Kevin? Yeah, I, I thought his level of I accountability, I always always respected. It at times borderlined on maybe what you see from Kim Mulkey or Robert Montgomery on the sidelines, but I thought uh, his level of accountability always stood the test of time. Boy, I'm going to have a hard time refuting that. All right, I'll be second on that list. But, uh, you know, Jake, it it is all the above from my perspective. I mean, uh, it was a year ago. It feels like it was 10 years ago. Um, I'm headed to Houston later this afternoon for some meetings, and uh, I do think some anxiety is going to set in. It it, uh, uh, For as cool as calm and collective as I've been over the last few months, I'm not sure that's going to be true this weekend. Bo, debating individual calls, I'm sure gets a bit old for you, but I have a feeling your phone was probably blowing up on Sunday afternoon when Ryan Nemhard was called for that foul in the Creighton-San Diego State game and the two free throws, the eventual game winner there. Your thoughts on the call, I guess we'll begin there first. Yeah, I was watching it live, and yeah, my phone blew up. Um, People like to compare it to other plays in the game that happened. They talked about different levels of physicality, but airborne shooters are different. Airborne shooters must be protected. Um, you know, the scoring has been down for many years in, in um, men's college basketball. The rules committee said, we want freedom of movement. We want to protect shooters. And that official did so. Um, now you have to have the conversation, illegal versus incidental. Defender got beat. Defender put his arm on the hip. Looked like there was some pressure. Uh, I support the official 100%. Should the fact that that game was uh, pretty lightly whistled, if you look at how those two teams have played all season, not a lot of fouls called, not a lot of free throw attempts, should that matter at that moment of the game? Like How the game begins to be called the first five minutes, if that carries on for the next 30, um, do you go off of the rule book? 24-7, 365, or does how the game called influence that at all? Well, I think everything's a variable, um, and it brings in the old art versus science, right? Like feel for the game versus letter of the law. Um, But to say lightly called, it's too subjective of a statement. I I just think that we can compare that to other airborne shooter plays throughout the game. And I've made the statement before. I'll make it again. Um, It's... It's not about when you blow the whistle, when you don't blow the whistle, swallowing the whistle. It's about whether it's illegal contact or not, regardless of when it happens. So uh, it's, it's a tough conversation to have, and it really comes down to who you're rooting for and you know your outlook on life. If you want to bash an official, boy, you're sure going to have the opportunity, and that game presented it. <laughs> Bo, when you look at it and you, and you look back at yourself – the human nature aspect of it to get do you try to call games the exact same every single time or do you let the 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 flow of the game determine how and i get what you're saying right about like the airborne you know those situations there are some of them probably that it's irrefutable on on the way you're going to call it so to speak but does the flow of the game ever dictate the the flexibility you have in your officiating from one game to the next, or is that too dangerous as an official? I think that's dangerous. Um, you know, one of the popular conversations is, you know, the big 10 not having success, you know, especially in April over the past 
what is it now, 23 years. But, you know, it's more of a half-court uh, type style as opposed to some of the other leagues that are more run-and-gun, maybe 10 more possessions each team. And if you have an outlook, well, I'm going to call it this way tonight because I'm in the Big East or because I'm in the Pac-12, I think you're setting yourself up for failure. I do think you use the rule book uh, as the parameters. Uh, the, the coaches and fans and uh, anybody is going to cut a play up and say, is this illegal contact or not? Our response isn't going to be, well, what league was it in? So I, I think you, uh, again, have to apply the uh, letter of the law and the uh, feel for the game. But to, to wonder if there's an approach on based on the league or based on even the time of the game, what is and what isn't, I think, I think is dangerous. Bo Borowski is our guest, of course, NCAA official, worked the Final Four in 2019, 2021, 2022, and now watches on television, although you're going to be in Houston. So let's go to this, Bo. For, you know, we, we know about the teams that make the Final Four. What is the process for the officials that make the Final Four, and then what does that week and lead up to? Like, what are those officials doing today, for example? Yeah, um, you're an officiating apologist. Most people won't care about this, including all your listeners, but I'll answer it anyway. (laughs) There's, what, 2,800 registered officials in men's basketball, 900 of them Division I um, uh, registered officials, 109 make the tournament, 96 make the first and second round, and then as you continue through, now you're down to 11. So on Monday afternoon, when when these guys got the call uh, that they were going, uh, leads to a ton of anxiety. They'll get there the day before the game, um, and they have to leave the day after. The NCAA is really clear about that. They want you in and out, and we as officials want want that as well. Um, So the officials working Saturday will get there tomorrow. Um, There'll be be an officiating dinner. They'll hang around the hotel. They'll – in their routines. For me, it was always, you know, Jesus and some Subway, a good, healthy meal. And, um, you know, arrive two hours prior, work the game, fly out the next morning. It, it's, we're ritual, uh, ritualistic people. And the Final Four doesn't change that. We don't engage or interact much, you know, with the, or, or at all, really, uh, with the teams, with, with the players. We just kind of do our own thing, throw a hat on and and, you know, walk around town sometimes with the families. But it's – we have to pretend it's not a big deal until it's over. Could you walk us through how officials are chosen? And, again, Bo Borowski's with us, uh, three Final Fours, Indy native, great, great human. Um, I, I might need to rearrange that Plum Creek order on former employees for me after this combo. Could you walk us through how officials are chosen for the tournament and then for the Final Four? Yeah, it's it's brutal, uh, subjective for sure. But it's it, it when you talk about the tournament itself, let's so I'll answer it in reverse order, Kevin. But it, there's conference coordinators at each of the sites. Um, there's regional advisors, uh, selection committee members. They're making recommendations. Uh, national coordinators breaking down every play. I mean, you're evaluated on your body language. You're evaluated on your judgment. Uh, your ability to uh, be in position. And then they have three choices to make, the people that submit it to the NCAA. Highly recommend, 
uh, recommend and do not recommend. So you're putting one of those three buckets after every game. It's compiled. The NCAA takes a, a ton of different things into account to determine, um, you know, who gets the nod, who works one game, two games, three games, four games. And it's a brutal process. And that's why your judgment's super important. But, you know, being an optimal communicator is too, because frankly, if somebody doesn't like you, that's evaluating you, you're, you're pretty well cooked. So it, uh, it truly, in my opinion, you know, rewards the best officials available. And, and it's a brutal process. During the course of the year, it, it's a nomination process that's used as a guide. So for somebody like me, I would imagine I appeared on Big Ten lists, Big East lists, Pac-12 lists. Uh, and a multitude of uh, of other mid majors, but it, it's the proof's in the pudding. Uh, even if somebody's pushing for somebody uh, to to get to the tournament, it's it's a lot easier to get there than it is to stay there. And it's it's a very subjective process, but about as tight as it could be uh, with something so subjective. So with that, Bo, what's interesting to me about that? So you're telling me that the the crew that is going to be working the Final Four in Houston this weekend did not know so like their friends are asking them like hey saturday we've got tickets to the play and they're saying well i don't know yet so like they didn't know until monday whether or not they had plans this weekend that's exactly right and and what is even more unbelievable to a lot of people the six people that are flying in tomorrow for the two semifinal games they won't know until 1 p.m what game they're working uh, on the day of the game and that was true for me. We'll take the bubble out of it. The bubble was just just different. Um, but you don't find out until lunch, uh, the lunch meeting, uh, which game you're working. Now, the three that, that are asked to work on Monday have a pretty good idea which game they have. But, yes, it's, it's kept under pretty tight wraps. And, and yeah, so they, those officials were going to the play until lunchtime this past Monday, and, and now some of them are going to Houston. Well, and for you, the real advantage there, Bo, let's be real, is the fact that you don't really have any social op- options or offerings anyway, right? So you were like, well, I'm good, right? You didn't have to clear it. That's correct. Yeah, I was always <laughs> wide open. Yeah, I never uh, – yeah, I would just sit at Kilroy's and drink alone. <laughs> <laughs> hey, um, let's talk about also – and I think I'm okay to say this. I mean, we've mentioned it before – because I, I'm very, very, in a small part, peripherally involved in it, but I do find it interesting. Um, the project that kind of got you to go away from being on the court, and that is the fact that you have now essentially the online, I'll call it a portal, for lack of a better phrase, for officials at the NCAA level to not only get assignments but to get reviews on games or plays. Uh, how is it going, and has it made you in any way, shape, or form miss being actually on the floor? Well, it's done quite the opposite, um, you know, and let the cat out of the bag, Jake, right? You're voiceover extraordinaire mm-hmm. um, for RefQuest. And, you know, basically what we do is we say we're in officiating services. And what is that? We call it REAP. We register, we educate, assign, and pay officials. So anytime you see an official um, on any NCAA tournament championship, you can presume that they've uh, taken tests, they've watched videos, they've uh, had a background check, they've got general and personal liability insurance. All, all the things that go along with being an official were somewhat of the clearinghouse to make sure that that happens. 
And I haven't missed it uh, because I'm involved in this company because instead of being involved with one sport, with men's basketball, I'm involved with 19, uh, which is all the different sports we handle on behalf of multiple governing bodies, including the NCAA and a ton of different conferences. So it has kept me so busy uh, that I really haven't had much of a chance to, to miss it. Now I'm on spring break with my family. I'm not working a whole lot, and I'm headed to the Final Four. Now my brain's starting to uh, play some tricks on me. But it, 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 I have truly filled the void, uh, you know, with, with the company. It's kept me involved in officiating in a big, big way. Bo, last one from me. Um, if I gave you the hat, kind of a commissioner of the day from an officiating standpoint, uh, what would you like to see from a restriction standpoint on either implementing challenges at the college level or how many times you can go to the monitor during the course of a game, particularly late in a game? Yeah, this is always a popular question. I, I If I were king for a day, uh, I, I tell you, I would just get rid of replay altogether. Uh, but then again, I'm comfortable with the human element. I'm comfortable with the fact that oh, oh boy, our fire alarms are going off here. Maybe I said the wrong thing. Is maybe the new president of the NCAA's listening sounded <laughs> the alarms off here? But um, it'll give you something to talk about. But I, I just think I just think that this expectation of perfection is not sustainable, and it's going to continue to make officials targets. Um, I understand that the gambling piece is an even bigger variable than ever, and there's some concerns with that as it relates to official security and safety um, and, and the safety and security of their family, quite honestly. So I get the need for games to be officiated perfectly, but again, it's so subjective. What's that even mean? I think it's important that games end right. And what the NCAA has done with the last two minutes uh, rules related to replay is the smartest thing that could have been done. I think you're going to see more expansion to the replay rule in the future, and I think we're going to relegate it to end of games, and that makes sense to me. Okay, Bo, last thing uh, for the sake of our listeners. Should we call 911? Yeah, should, do we need to call, take the stairs? Do not take the elevator. Take the stairs for the safety of you and your family, okay? Let me look out the window here. I don't see. I think we're good. I think we're good. The issue I always run into is I I don't know which smoke alarm it is. You know, I'm making the whole family stop and wait and don't make a single sound, and then I've got to identify which one needs the batteries. I thought you were already in Houston and the Florida Atlantic Team Hotel, and some San Diego State fans thought it was like five in the morning. That that old prank. Um, (laughs) Bo, do you ever get a chance? You and I've talked about this. It may be even on the air. I, I don't recall, but you know, for me. Like for example, when I work a race, when I'm when I'm broadcasting a race, there will be mm-hmm. moments in the race that later when I watch it, I don't recall because I'm like in a zone when I'm calling the race, and so I'm not watching the totality of the race if that makes sense. And then later when I watch it, it's almost surreal to me to think that I was there, and I'm like, gosh, I don't remember that happening. Does that happen to you when you watch replays of a game that you worked? Are you not able to fully appreciate? the level of play, the style of play, the magnitude of the moment until after the fact? It doesn't surprise me one bit that you don't recall what you just saw maybe an hour earlier, Jake, but I I can tell you that typically that as I've gotten 
older and, you know, work more games that that has happened less. I do have very specific recollections that somebody would say, oh, did you know that Edwards had 46 points? And I'm like, oh, he did? You, you know, so that has happened. But I think if, if you want to balance that art versus science, you have to be in tune with everything. Uh, who's beaten who off the dribble? Who's uh, the number of fouls? Where we're at in the game? Do they have timeouts left? And I think with that mindset, as I've matured as an official, have, has prevented that from happening. But um, I know it's happened in my past, and and I can tell you that I was embarrassed at times where people would say, hey, did you see so-and-so? And I'd go, no, I, I don't even remember that. So it has happened, but earlier in my career for sure. After he gets his home secured and locked and everything safe and sound on that end, he is off to Houston for the final four, which he has obviously been a big part of here in recent years. Bo, always enjoy catching up with you. Safe travels. Enjoy Houston, and uh, appreciate you fielding some of our questions today. You got it. Thanks so much, guys. Have a great day.